Welcome to the Exposing Mold podcast, where I, Keely Severson, Eric Johnson, and Alicia Swamy are exposing mold. Today we have Dr. Strauss joining us for an interview. Dr. David Strauss is a retired professor of 32 years from the Division of Microbiology and Immunology at Texas Tech University Health Sciences Center. He obtained his PhD from Loyola University from Chicago, completed his fellowship at the University of Cincinnati, and spent the majority of his career as a researcher and professor of microbiology and immunology at Texas Tech University. In addition to this, he has served as a consultant to the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, has been awarded the Dean's Hero Award and recognition as an Excellent Teacher Award, has served as chairman for over a dozen institutional programs, has served as an expert witness in over 50 court cases, and currently holds two patents. One that is of particular interest to us in our audience is the apparatus developed for the method of detecting the presence of an airborne mycotoxin in an enclosure. Dr. Strauss has completed extensive research in, but not limited to, infectious agents such as streptococcus, microbiology of indoor and outdoor air, the effects of the inhalation of fungal spores, the detection of mycotoxins in indoor air, stachybotrys mycotoxins, chamatomian mycotoxins, the mechanism of neurotoxicity of stachybotrys mycotoxins, the detection of trichothecine mycotoxins in human serum, and his work in molds, mycotoxins, and sick building syndrome. Wow, I don't think I've ever seen someone with a 76-page resume before. Your accomplishments are quite impressive. Thank you again for being on the show, and we look forward to learning more about your knowledge, training, and experience in mold and mycotoxins. Dr. Strauss, I recently read a very interesting quote that you made in a book written by Arnold Mann. And this quote was fascinating to me for many reasons, because the three of us are seeing a lot of misinformation about the effectiveness of mold testing and air testing for mold and stachybotrys being completely misrepresented by some environmental indoor air professionals or air quality professionals. And the quote that you made was, people always used to say stachybotrys could not be playing any role in any disease because there were not enough spores in the air to be inhaled. We have found these mycotoxins float in the air free of spores. So any experiment based on the number of spores is worthless. I would really appreciate if you would elaborate more on testing limitations for mycotoxins and just explain this to our listeners who are relying on air tests or other testing methods that might not give them all the information that they're looking for. Certainly, I'd be happy to do that. It used to be believed before we actually showed that this was not true, that the only way that the mycotoxins could get, stachybotrys mycotoxins could get into the human body were by the inhalation of spores. And indeed, this is one way in which stachybotrys mycotoxins can get into the body via the inhalation of spores. We were able to show, however, that indeed the mycotoxins actually separate from the spores and actually float around in the air free, where of course they can be inhaled. And the reason that no one was ever able to do this before we did it was because it requires the concentration of hundreds of thousands of liters of air to be able to get the mycotoxins to a concentration 
where you can actually detect them. So once we were able to do that, we were able, we had a machine that was able to concentrate a hundred, hundreds of thousands of liters of air into a very small, uh, just a couple of milliliters of fluid. Then we were able to show that the mycotoxins actually float around in the air free of spores. And that's essentially what that statement meant. And of course, we actually published that uh, in, in a uh, peer-reviewed paper. Do you know of any testing that is currently offered for people who believe that they are sick from the chemicals that mold produces that they can use to assess the full concentration of mycotoxins within their homes? Um, well, it's very, very difficult uh, because nobody else really has been able to do what we were able to do because we had the machine that would concentrate hundreds of thousands of liters of air. If you were just to take an air sample, even though mycotoxins might be present in the air, they're at such a low concentration that you would not be able to detect them. So right now, most of these companies that go around looking for what's in the air do not have the capability of actually detecting mycotoxins in the air. Their equipment is not sophisticated and sensitive enough to do that. What is your opinion on the current effectiveness of just testing in general that people are using to analyze the health of a home? Well, it really depends. Uh, various companies do various different types of testing. What we always relied upon when, when I was actually doing this was we would actually measure, see what, what was actually in the air, the types of spores that were in the air. And then, of course, we had the capability of actually detecting mycotoxins in the air, which nobody else was able to do because they didn't have the machine that could concentrate these hundreds of thousands of liters of air. So in reality, in fact, I was talking with Alicia uh, about, I thought perhaps she had been exposed to stachybotrys, even though the testing that she had done on her home did not show any stachybotrys in, in either of those tests. But the symptoms that she had told me that perhaps she did have a stachybotrys mycotoxin exposure. But once again, the testing that the two companies that she used did were not capable of picking up the mycotoxins in the air if they were there. And of course, I don't know if the mycotoxins were actually in the air in her home. Uh, thank you, Dr. Strauss. Again, um, I just wanted to say thank you for your consultation um, with that. And I just wanted to ask you, what are the the direct symptoms associated with deadly three exposure to mycotoxins. I believe it was Aspergillus versicolor, uh, Stachybotrys, and uh, Chitomium were the deadly three that you had mentioned to me. Yes, th th those those are the, um, in my opinion, the three most important mycotoxins. And these organisms require very high water concentration uh, in order for uh, them to grow. And the stachybotrys mycotoxin and the chitomium mycotoxins, essentially what they do are they're either protein synthesis uh, inhibitors or they stop cells from being able to multiply. Aspergillus versicolor produces an entirely different type of mycotoxin. It produces a mycotoxin called sterigmatocystin, which is a carcinogen, a known human carcinogen. And in my opinion, those are the three most deadly mycotoxins that are produced by uh, fungi and once again, these three organisms require a very high water concentration for a long period of time. And when you and I talked, Alicia, you told me that you had a very slow water leak for it. You thought it may have gone on for six months. That's ideal conditions for Stachybotrys, Tritomium, Raspagellus, Versicolor to grow. So it's your medical opinion that 
people could be exposed to toxic molds that are affecting their health that may not show up on the test. Oh, absolutely. I don't, I don't think there's any, any question about it because very few people are, in fact, I don't think there are any companies really that are capable of detecting mycotoxins in the air like, like we were able to be able to detect it. And I was only able to do that, of course, because I had a scientific research lab at a university. Most of the companies, of course, that do these type of testing don't have those types of capabilities. Yeah, that's, that's really interesting to me. Um, and going along with your success in, in capturing mycotoxins in the air, you actually patent that device or, or that apparatus. What has happened with that patent? Has it moved forward or, or has anyone built it out and, and is now using it? Or maybe you can speak more on that. Well, I, to be honest with you, um, I, I don't know. It was a company that, that was uh, decided to patent that particular procedure because I'll, I'll just go back a little bit. The, the company that was funding the research that we're talking about now, what uh, we would do is we would, we would go to the homes that, that were you know, employing them to do the testing. And what I wanted told them that I wanted to do is we had developed a way to detect mycotoxin in, in the air that no one else had. And I told them I wanted them to patent it so that, of course, they could get business and, of course, continue to, to fund my lab. So uh, what has happened with it uh, since, I, I'm afraid I can't tell you because I, that, that particular company has gone out of business. So I don't know actually what's happened to that patent. The uh, poster behind me says chronic trichothecine mycotoxins may be indistinguishable from chronic fatigue syndrome. Now, in 1985, two doctors in Incline Village called the Center for Disease Control for help with clusters of teachers in sick buildings. The um, CDC investigators, the epidemiologists, John Kaplan and Gary Holmes were unable to figure out why these teachers were becoming ill, even though we and the teachers were pointing it at mold as a cause. At this time, 1985, there wasn't really anything in the um, literature on toxic mold. In fact, it wasn't entered into um, the peer-reviewed medical literature until Dr. Croft's paper the following year in 1986. Yeah, I remember that paper. So as a result, the uh, researchers were completely baffled and they created this new syndrome, chronic fatigue syndrome, and wrote down that nothing was known. There was no evidence and they had no leads to follow up on. Shortly after, the uh, schools figured out that the, there was a basis for our complaints with the mold. They called the top mold experts to come test and remediate the structures. So we were able to find that Stachybotrys was indeed the unknown agent that was responsible for the creation of the chronic fatigue syndrome. So I um, understand that you wrote a paper with Dr. Uh, Brewer and Dr. Thrasher that uh, speculates that mold might be a cause for chronic fatigue syndrome when in fact, this was the very basis, the first clue for the creation of the syndrome. Did um, Dr. Thrasher and Dr. Brewer inform you that they already knew that Stachybotrys had been found at ground zero for chronic fatigue syndrome? I was not aware of, of, what, you're, of what you're telling me. First of all, I'd like to say that I'm not an MD, I'm of course a PhD. And for many years, in fact, my sister uh, had chronic fatigue syndrome and, and she often wondered uh, what was causing it. So. I was always interested in chronic fatigue syndrome because my sister had it. And I always thought that I would not be surprised if stachybotrys exposure or some of the other mycotoxins that uh, fungi produce 
perhaps we're related. And I don't want to I don't want to go out on a limb and say it's the cause because we're not sure, obviously. But I want I always thought there may be a relationship there. But of course, not being an MD, I never had access to any patients until I met Dr. Brewer through Dr. Hooper. And then I found out, of course, that Dr. Brewer uh, actually examined, actually had a large number of chronic fatigue syndrome patients. And then, of course, we came up with the idea, okay, let's look for the presence of these three mycotoxins, stachybotrys mycotoxin, ocratoxin, and uh, can't remember the uh, I can't remember the, th the third mycotoxin. It was a long time that paper was done. I said, let's look for the presence of these mycotoxins in your patients. And so we did that study and, and indeed found that chronic fatigue syndrome patients, we found, I think if I remember correctly, that 93% of the chronic fatigue syndrome patients had one or several of these mycotoxins in their system. But I want to make clear that, and I want to make sure that what, what we said in that paper is there is this correlation but I don't want to say that it's causal because we can't prove that yet. And I hope I answered your question. I, I, I know I may not have. Yeah, actually, uh, you, you have answered it. I'm the first prototype for the chronic fatigue syndrome. And when I was asked to volunteer in this capacity, I actually refused because I was already aware of the power of toxic mold. And I was concerned that doctors were going to create this syndrome and write down that nothing was known and create a speculative relationship rather than a direct causal relationship. So by volunteering to be a prototype and establish the substance directly in the original chronic fatigue syndrome cohort, which was later determined by the top mold experts in the country, there's um, no longer any speculative association. This is a direct cause. This is the first clue in chronic fatigue syndrome so all we need to do is write a paper that shows that we did in fact determine this and we can remove this doubt, settle the matter and um, proceed on with raising awareness about the power of toxic mold. Well, I, I personally think that would be wonderful. Of course, I'm sure you're aware that I retired seven years ago and don't have that capability anymore, but I, I think that would be a wonderful idea. The other interesting thing, the development is that at the 2019 Mold Congress, Dr. Chin Yang explained that although this has been known for some time, it's very, um, very rarely discussed that Stachybotrys has an evil twin, Stachybotrys chlorohalinata, which um, is indiscernible from Stachybotrys except by PCR. Visually, there's no way to tell the difference. But this evil twin, the chlorohalinata, produces the uh, atronomes that suppress cell division and create a low natural killer cell function and immune suppression without the overt neurological signs of the stachybotrys, the satrotoxins. So in fact, it may be more dangerous because you lack the warning that would otherwise tell you to, to get out. I, I just have to say that, that that's an organism that I never worked with. We only worked with Tartarum in, in all the experiments that I did with stachybotrys. So I really can't comment on that particular organism because I've never worked with it. I see. So um, in essence, we need to revisit cases where Stachybotrys was located and look for the presence of this other species to find out if maybe people are suffering from a low level of immune suppression without the overt symptoms that would tell them they were exposed to Stachybotrys charterum. Yeah, and I understand, I understand your concern there, but it would be very difficult, obviously, 
just think of all the years of research on Chartarum and they may have been working with this other organism and not known it. And of course, there's no way to go back and, and redo any of that research. In terms of the uh, chronic fatigue syndrome, this is kind of a, a unique situation because although the medical profession and the Center for Disease Control did not conduct the investigation that made the ultimate determination that stachybotrys was present, the people who did are mold professionals in their own right. So their expertise actually outranks that of the CDC and medical profession because these were the top people and they did test for stachybotrys and they did conduct remediation and eventually cleaned up the building. So an effective causal relationship was, was found and the situation addressed and yet the medical profession to this day is still not aware of it. I did 50 lawsuits and I've, I remember fighting, fighting for that argument in all 50 of them. So I know exactly what you're talking about. I've been to uh, Stanford many times and explained the situation to them and uh, contacted most of the top chronic fatigue syndrome researchers in the world. And they're of the opinion that too many years have passed, so this can never be known. So they feel free to move on to pursue chronic fatigue syndrome as a possible virus or some other agent, mycoplasma, Lyme disease, any other you know, number of factors, when in fact, matter has already been settled. Do you have any suggestions how we could um, get this through to the top researchers and explain that the original base of the chronic fatigue syndrome has already been uh, solved years ago? Obviously, the only way to do that is going to be to publish a paper to that effect with, with, with uh, additional data. And as I say, since I've been out of the research world for, for at least seven years, I don't know how that's going to be done. And, let, and I really don't know if there are any other researchers who have, who have picked up on the stuff that, that, that Brewer and Hooper and I did uh, seven years ago. I don't know if anyone's continued that or not. I, I am not in a, have not been in a position to follow the, the literature since I'm not at the university anymore. I actually asked Dr. Thrasher to write that paper back in 2000. You know, of course, that Dr. Thrasher has passed away. I do. Yes. Yeah. yeah, it's very unfortunate. Yeah, he conducted uh, other toxic mold investigations and was very well aware of the, uh, the power of stachybotrys, but we just never got around to writing that, that paper. And then later when Dr. Brewer started uh, his investigation, he was associated with the Whittemore-Peterson Institute on the University of Nevada Reno campus. And I had told the uh, Whittemore-Peterson Institute about the history of chronic fatigue syndrome. And I was hoping to get Dr. Brewer to assist in writing that paper at the time that he proceeded to write his 2012 paper, making a speculative relationship. And I was surprised that in this paper, he didn't include the fact that this was already known. Yeah, I, I, I just can't comment on that, why that, why that wasn't added in, the, in that particular paper. I, I just can't. Well, maybe we could get Dr. Brewer or some other uh, doctor to come forward and address the situation. That would, that would be great and I would be happy to help, although I haven't communicated with Dr. Brewer since, since uh, that paper was written and I'm not even sure how many years ago that was. But if I can help you in any way to do any of this, I would certainly be happy to. Oh, thank you. One of the uh, really confusing aspects about the chronic fatigue syndrome is that they were testing when they finally got around to testing for toxic mold in people's houses. And yet the clusters of illness were the place of employment. Well, you know, that's going to happen. Um, they can be exposed in the home, in the school, or at the place of work. It really doesn't matter where they're exposed. 
in uh, some instances, people that became ill were only uh, exposed part-time. Say, um, in one particular situation, there was a storm drain in the center of Incline Village, and people passing through this area, if they spent enough time there, it seemed to open up a window of vulnerability in their immune system so that a virus that was passing through would affect them in a much more strong fashion than doctors would expect. We published a paper in 1994. It was the first paper to show the cause of sick building syndrome was, was indeed mold growing in buildings. In that paper, we showed that stachybotrys and interestingly enough, penicillium was also causing problems in those particular buildings. Penicillium filling the air with millions and millions of spores, which people would inhale. And in fact, that's what happened in Alicia's house. I looked at her report and there was tremendous numbers of penicillium in the air. And of course, most spores are small enough to be inhaled. And when you inhale them, you get hypersensitivity, pneumonitis, and shortness of breath. And of course, stachybotrys producing the mycotoxins in the buildings. Those are the two primary ways in which we showed uh, that indeed mold is the cause of sick building syndrome. The uh, other thing that I wanted to ask about was the guttation phenomenon, where the uh, chemical fragments separate from the spores or from the colony itself become crystalline fragments. My understanding is that these crystalline fragments as they shatter and fill the air, because they contain no organic material, are not detectable by PCR. And that, that could very well be. So what are those uh, crystalline fragments composed of, do you know? Just the uh, pure toxins. It's like oh, okay. the sap of a okay. tree. As I say, we, we were able to, to show by, by using filters that would trap all of the spores and, of course, let the pure mycotoxins through. That was a way in which we were able to show that the mycotoxins actually separate from the spores and are free in the air and people could actually wind up inhaling them. And, and an interesting phenomenon was, in fact, the lawyers, um, we actually t uh, showed that there were picogram quantities of these mycotoxins in the air. And the lawyers on the other side would say, well, these concentrations are so incredibly small, you can't tell me that they would cause any type of disease. And what I said was, is think how many times, how many breaths you take every day inside of a building. So indeed, you just inhale a small amount each time you take a breath, but each time you take a breath, you inhale mycotoxins, and it's just a matter of time before you inhale a large enough concentration to begin to see some of the diseases that you see in these buildings. Yeah, people inhale 2,905 gallons of oxygen per day on average. So, and, and if there are mycotoxins in each breath you take, then of course it's going to build up in the system and to finally get to such a concentration that's going to begin to cause some of the disease that we see in people. We were, able, we were able to follow, and, and, uh, and I, have, I have my CV here, and I can always uh, point out the, the particular papers that we published to show this, to show that, that when, when a building, building is contaminated, water damage, and I told Alicia this, uh, I said, one of the things that the lawyers always asked me was, on the other side, where does this stuff come from? And we found out that the stachybotrys spores are already on the sheetrock when they build the house. So they're just sitting there waiting for water. So when water is added, of course, the stachybotrys then begin to colonize, begin to grow, and we were able to show that the mycotoxins get into the air, and we were able then to detect the mycotoxins in the presence of people by looking for the mycotoxins in, in their serum. 
And then we were also able to show that as the mycotoxin concentrations increased in certain people, they got sick, but in our controls that had no mycotoxin in their systems, they remained healthy. And, and we were able to publish that. We have been combating this exact type of misinformation in our education outreach online. We've encountered people who claim to be mold experts who own remediation companies that when we've told this to, they have laughed and mocked us and said, you can't, unless you're inhaling drywall, you're not going to get sick. That's ridiculous to think that that's in the air. So thank you for setting the record straight on that. Well, well you, you, can, you can look at um, uh, the papers that I published and you can say that the, this, these, this is peer reviewed science. So they can't say it's junk science. It's peer-reviewed and indeed showing that the mycotoxins are in the air. And, I, and I'm not sure I know what book you're pointing to there, uh, Eric. Well, this is the uh, Eckerd Johanning and Dr. Oh, okay. Chuning. I know Dr. Johanning, yeah. From 1994, which uh, has a chapter, in fact, several chapters, speculating that uh, stachybotrys might be associated with chronic fatigue syndrome. And the other um, important point that this book makes is that it may not actually be a dose response at all. That uh, chronic activation of the innate immune system creates an, a priming where the dose relationship leaves the equation. And from that point on, minute exposures stimulate the innate immune system without an antibody response and create a self-perpetuating state of uh, chronic cytokine upregulation. And you know, I, I think, I think you, you, I think you're correct, and here's the reason that I, that I think that is what I have learned is that stachybotrys mycotoxins affect different people differently. Eric, did you ever meet um, uh, Melinda Ballard? I did talk with her over the internet, but I never met, met her in person. Okay, well, I, I, I met her a, a great deal, and I, and I really liked her. Unfortunately, she, she has passed away, but the reason that I bring uh, Melinda up my first exposure to stachybotrys, and, and remember, uh, I was a bacteriologist <laughs> when I started, and all of a sudden, I be had to become a mycologist, which meant I had to learn an awful lot of things that I didn't know before. Um, I went to her house, and I think it was the year 1999, and uh, she had, remember the indoor air quality company that I was telling you about, she happened to meet one of the um, primaries of, of the indoor air quality company that I worked with, on an airplane and she was sitting there and she was sick and, and uh, she was bleeding from the nose. And my friend, Bill Holder, and I don't know if any of you ever met him, and she was coughing and obviously sick. And, and Bill said, excuse me, ma'am. She said, he said, are, are you feeling all right? And she said, no, I feel terrible. I don't know what's, what's wrong with me. My husband is sick. My son is sick. I have no idea what's wrong with us. And you know what he said to her? He said, has your house had any water damage? And she said, Oh, yeah, we've had tremendous water damage. And he says, well, I know then why you're sick. And then two days later, I walked into her house. And her house was built on the model of Terra from Gone with the Wind. And I remember walking up that stair, and I'm sure you all remember the one that Brett Butler walked up, uh, Clark Gable walked up. I was walking up that step, and I turned to Bill, and I said, I don't feel good at all, Bill. And I... I said, I got to get out of here. And I went and sat in the truck and got sick and threw up. But what was interesting, and my point was, is that the rest of the crew went in and finished evaluating that house. 
when I got sick immediately just walking in and inhaling it. And so obviously there was something different about them as opposed to me. And all I'm saying is, is the mycotoxins affect different people differently. Yeah, during the um, original chronic fatigue syndrome outbreak, when I noticed that all people with a mystery malady diagnosis were reacting to sick buildings similarly, I simply took people after they started the diagnosing with chronic fatigue syndrome, I took these people to the very buildings where the clusters occurred and they were all instantly affected, all of them. So this was a really a hands-on experiential basis for pursuing the, uh, the toxic mold phenomenon. And interestingly enough, after Drs. Cheney and Peterson became famous, people started flying in from all over the country to receive this new chronic fatigue syndrome diagnosis. And there were some people who already carried the diagnosis of Lyme disease. And I found that the Lyme disease people were just as reactive to the sick buildings as people with the chronic fatigue syndrome were. That's interesting. Of course, that's a, that's a bacterial disease, uh, Borrelia burgdorferi. Um, and I don't know uh, the relationship between uh, Lyme disease and, and toxic mold. That's something that I've never seen any papers on. Yeah, sometimes uh, people think that they simply result that the viruses involved in chronic fatigue syndrome and the bacteria involved in Lyme disease um, create the, the illness, the resulting illness. But I'm wondering if it's the other way around, that perhaps stachybotrys has increased to the extent that people are walking around already primed, and then the subsequent infection is what brings out their priming. No, I think that's exactly true. I think the stachybotrys mycotoxins really tend to knock down the immune system, making you much more uh, prone to infection by, by viruses or bacteria. I think that actually is, is, is true. I had a question for you, Dr. Strauss. Do these like stocky mycotoxins and penicillium and all these other molds that show up in people's homes, do these mycotoxins interact? Do they supercharge themselves when they're all mixed together being breathed into the body? I'm just curious to, in your experience, what you've seen. Um, no, I, I have not seen any, any effect of synergism between the various mycotoxins. Um, I, I will tell you some, something interesting. Uh, people always have asked me, um, why do these fungi produce these mycotoxins? And, and many times other people that I don't agree with will say, well, they produce the mycotoxins to inhibit the growth of other organisms around them so that they can uh, grow at a much more rapid rate. But I will say that when we put um, stachybotrys and penicillium on auger plates right next to each other, penicillium grows right up against uh, stachybotrys. So the mycotoxins, for example, that, that uh, stachybotrys produces has no effect that we could see on any of the other fungi. But to answer your question, Alicia, I've never seen any synergism uh, between the mycotoxins. I've, I've really never seen any papers examining that. Have you seen anything special about the mycotoxins that stachybotrys produces? Anything special? Well, I, I, think it's, I, think it's, I think it's one of the most potent protein synthesis inhibitors that, that we know of. So in my opinion, that, that's really quite special. What the mycotoxins do, the, the effects that we have seen, they cause exfoliation, which means loss of skin. Uh, I've seen uh, people that have lost their hair that have inhaled stachybotrys mycotoxins. And one of the most disturbing things, of course, is this thing called, uh, quote unquote, brain fog, which, which just obviously, it's a neurotoxin, and it affects people's ability to, to, to think. In fact, I've been 
uh, involved in a case where a young girl was exposed to stachybotrys mycotoxins, and uh, she was in, uh, in, in a university setting at the time and has not been able to go back to the university because she doesn't feel confident enough to be able to handle university courses now because of what the mycotoxins did to her. The, the common argument is that mold has always been around and that stachybotrys has always been around. Why was this so completely unknown in the past? Well, I, I, th I think here's, here's the answer to that. When we began to build, to do two things when we began to make buildings, we, we now, business buildings, of course, are completely airtight to control the cost. You can't open a window. And that's one of the reasons. I think the other reason is, is the use of sheetrock. Because when, when I was a kid and houses were built and they had plaster walls, and of course, plaster was very expensive at the time and difficult to do, but now most homes have sheetrock everywhere. And as soon as sheetrock gets wet, one of the things that we learned, you can buy some sheetrock take it home, put it in a petri dish, a piece of petri dish and put water in there, stachybotrys will grow. So this sheetrock that people put in their homes now already has the stachybotrys spores present and all they're doing is sitting there waiting for water. So I hope that answered your question, Eric. Yeah, and I read a really interesting thing about stachybotrys is that when researchers first tried to study it and put it in a conventional petri dishes, it didn't produce powerful toxins that it wasn't until it was grown on sheetrock with cellulose or cornmeal agar that it produced its most potent toxins. Right. And in fact, I, I, are you familiar with, with, with the first discovery of the stachybotrys mycotoxins in, in Russia right after World War I? Yes. Uh, I'll, I'll tell the, the two ladies here who may, who may not know about this. What happened in, in Russia after World War I, of course, everybody in Russia was very poor. And what would happen was that the hay that they would feed their horses would get wet. And they noticed that the hay turned black. And of course, they didn't have anything else to feed their horses. They fed their horses this hay and the horses died. And of course, what was going on with stachybotrys was growing on the hay. And of course, when the horses ingested the, the hay contaminated with stachybotrys, the mycotoxins wound up killing them. That was really the, the primary discovery of the stachybotrys mycotoxins. A lot of research kind of indicates that most of the mycotoxins that we get into our body are caused, are caused by food. And that doesn't seem to match the presentation when people are, are living in water damage. Well, in my opinion, and that's a great question because that's, that's another thing that the defense lawyers would always say to me that, well, people, people ingest mycotoxins all the time. And, and that, you know, that, that, may, that may be true if they uh, certain, certain levels of mycotoxins, like the aflatoxins, are allowed on various grains. But in reality, what happens in a water-damaged uh, building, and, and I said, we've shown this and we've published this, that stachybotrys grows in those buildings. Even though the spores don't get into the air, the mycotoxins do. And so the primary route, as far as I'm concerned, and, and we published this, is by inhalation the stachybotrys gets into the human body via inhalation, not via ingestion. Because usually if, if, if a person is going to eat a piece of cheese that has something black growing on it, they're not going to do that. They're going to, they're going to throw it away. But in my opinion, the primary way in which stachybotrys mycotoxins get into the human body is via inhalation. The other extraordinary thing that I heard about um, stachybotrys is that the Soviet Union tried to weaponize it um, at the end or shortly after World War II. And they yes. were studying this as a potential biological warfare agent. 
And when they purified the mycotoxins, separated it from the spores and fragments and just got the pure toxin, the only transient effects were noticed. That if somebody didn't receive a fatal dose, they tended to recover. Whereas if the toxin was still attached to the fragments, it was more pathogenic. Well, in, in actuality, uh, and I, I don't know if this is, this is true or not, what I read, and I, and I know what you're referring to, uh, what I read is that, that the Soviet Union tried to use uh, Stachybotrys mycotoxins in Laos, and what they would do is grow up huge vats on, on rice, and then they would solubilize it, of Stachybotrys mycotoxins, and they would fly over the, the troops that they were, that they were uh, uh, fighting against, and they would just dump this stuff out of helicopters, and it would stick to the, to the Laotian soldiers, and of course, once it gets on your skin, it's absorbed, and many of these soldiers would die. And of course, that's the report that I read. I really don't know if it's true or not, but that's the speculation. The um, 1994 Cleveland infant of uh, infant pulmonary hemorrhage cause was never really nailed down because the variable toxicity of Stachybotrys is so difficult to determine. But in more recent times, there have been experiments where the um, structure of Stachybotrys was cleansed of its mycotoxins and then introduced into test animals, and just the fragments and spores completely washed clean of any toxins seem to be capable of producing this pulmonary hemorrhage. Well, all right, I, I, can, I can tell you about that. I, I know Dor Dearborn, uh, I won't say well, really well, but I do know Dor, and he was the one, of course, that, that did that study. And several years later, and I have the paper, but I can't remember who was the primary author. In the study you're talking about, there was a pulmonary hemosiderosis, which is just bleeding of the lungs in these infants. And a few years later, and I can't remember the guy's name, but I have the paper, showed that Stachybotrys also produces a hemolysin, which of course is something that lyses red blood cells. And that is probably what was actually causing the pulmonary hemosiderosis that you're talking about and not the mycotoxins. And that's what was probably causing the pulmonary bleeding in those infants. But uh, Dearborn did not know that at the time that he published this stuff in 94. The um, hypothesis proposed by Etzel and Dearborn is that Stachybotrys was an agent of particular interest and they only wanted to pursue it. It wasn't an official study in that they outlined a, a study design, carried out experiments. It was just a proposal. And yet it seems that in the years since, People are trying to defeat this association by saying that it was a poor study design. Do you have any comments on that? Yeah, I, I do. It. And I'll go back to the, to the paper that we published in 1994, and I'll just tell you about it because it was a landmark paper. And the reason it was a landmark paper was, is that I told you that, that we were working with an indoor air quality company. And because we were working with an indoor air quality company who, whose job it was to go around and evaluate buildings, we had access to 46 buildings. No one ever had access to that many buildings before. And this is essentially what we found. It started off that in these 46 buildings, people that lived in the, or worked in those buildings were complaining that something in the building was making them sick. And at that time, we had no idea what it was. So I started going around to these buildings with the indoor air quality company. And the first thing I noticed was in each one of these buildings, guess what I discovered? Water damage. And being a microbiologist, I knew that water damage, if you have water damage in a building, you're going to get mold or fungi growing. And indeed, that's exactly what we found. And we found in that paper 
two primary reasons why people were sick in building. One, there was stachybotrys there producing mycotoxins, and that was really the beginning of, of the research that I did in this area. And the other thing was, is we discovered that penicillium was also in these buildings. These two things were enough to make people sick in buildings, even each one individually. The penicillium spores got into the air in, in such high concentrations when people inhaled them, they came down with a hypersensitivity, pneumonitis, and shortness of breath, difficulty in breathing. And of course, the mycotoxins, we've already discussed what the mycotoxins do. So when we went into those buildings with the indoor air quality company, and when we fixed those buildings, which essentially meant we stopped the water intrusion, got rid of everything that had mold growing on it, got rid of stachybotrys, got rid of penicillium. And when we did that, when the people went back into the building, they said, hey, I feel fine in this building now. So we showed very clearly that that's how you fix a sick building. And, and just, just so, so my two lady friends will understand, it's really not the building that gets sick, of course, it's the people in the building that become sick. Buildings don't become sick, but the people in the buildings become sick. And that's why it's called sick building syndrome. And I hope I answered your question, Eric. I know I got off on a tangent. Yeah, in uh, 1994, the Center for Disease Control did a study on a major office complex in Sacramento, the Twin Towers, which uh, ironically housed the California Department of Public Health. And many people were complaining of chronic fatigue syndrome and received that diagnosis. And the Center for Disease Control did their own investigation. They uh, conducted polls, they did a study, and they determined that the building was indeed responsible for creating chronic fatigue syndrome. And what was the cause? They didn't specify in the newspaper what the cause was. They just established that it was a sick building and that it was nothing unusual. This was not unusual. In fact, it was fairly routine for people to, to develop chronic fatigue syndrome in association with a sick building setting. Shortly thereafter, they published a new definition for chronic fatigue syndrome, the FACUDA definition. In fact, it was published by the very same people who did this study in Sacramento and yet they said there were no known risk factors for chronic fatigue syndrome. Well, as I say, we, we got a great deal of press when we published that paper, and I'm pretty sure it was 1994, because we definitely showed that the primary cause of sick building syndrome was these two particular organisms, stachybotrys and penicillin, growing in the building. And once we cleared the building of those organisms and put back all the building, good building material, the people walked in that building and said everything was fine. And the beauty of that study was, of course, it wasn't just one building it was 46 buildings. So we had uh, incredible statistics as to uh, these organisms or what was actually the cause of sick building syndrome. My confirmation was to take people, uh, chronic fatigue syndrome advocates from all over to the very sick buildings, to the very places where the clusters occurred. But now all of them have been remediated. They've been successfully cleaned up and they feel perfectly fine now. So as a result, the chronic fatigue syndrome researchers tell me your evidence is gone. You have no more proof. Yeah, it's a very, very unfortunate situation. And when I went through mold in my home and, and dealing with everything, being extremely sick, we called mold remediators experts. And a lot of them just told us that fogging would be the most effective way to deal with this. Now, I wanted to get your expertise, your experience, your opinion on this. Can fogging completely eliminate the issue of 
stachybotrys and any other mycotoxins that are circulating in the environment? No, there, there's really only one way to fix building. And uh, that is the first thing one must do is stop the water intrusion, figure out where it's coming from and stop it. The second thing, of course, is to find all the stachybotrys, penicillium, chitomium, whatever is growing in the building, find all of that, remove it, remove those materials with mold growth on it, replace it with clean building material, and then you're going to have fixed that building. But fogging, that really won't do anything in my opinion. I'm not even sure what they fog with, but it doesn't matter. Whatever it is, it won't work. Yeah, there are uh, people who believe that ion generators and fogging, which precipitates the particulates to the horizontal surfaces, is going to somehow remove the problem. And my theory is we all have to lay down sometime. No, that, that, as I say, Find the water intrusion, correct it, get rid of the mold, replace it with clean building material. That's the only way to fix the building. That's the way we fixed all 46 of those buildings. And when people went back into those buildings, they said, we feel fine now. So with that being said, would it be your medical opinion that these techniques used by fogging companies are definitely not adequate? Yes, I, and remember, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not a medical doctor, I'm a PhD, but that is not the way to fix a building. I've already told you how to fix a building. Yes, we've been having this discussion with a lot of mold remediators that do fogging and trying to really spread this message that the appropriate way to remediate is to stop water intrusion and remediate, remove all damaged materials. And what we find in the mold groups is that people are really victim to poor remediation tactics and poor information and misinformation. The companies that do fogging they tell the people, well, if it doesn't work the first time, we'll just do it again and again and again. But they're not stopping the water intrusion. They're not finding the mold. They're not removing it. And then people are, are getting sicker in the process and developing like multiple chemical sensitivity and their symptoms worsen. And that's just an observation that we've been seeing. And I feel like we've been fighting so much misinformation on the remediation side. Well, we, we have, you know, I really think what you, sh what you should do is, is fight, fight these people with peer-reviewed science. And, and as I say, in my CV, you'll find papers where indeed we publish a peer-reviewed papers that show exactly how to, how to fix buildings. And, and, and fogging is not the way to do it. Some of these fogging products are actually EPA approved, which is really misleading for the consumer because they think that they have some kind of green product approved by the Environmental Protection Agency and it's mismarketing. And we will absolutely look at your papers and start sharing them for educational purposes. So thank you. Good, that, that, that's good because as I say, in all the trials that I dealt with, I was able to show, I have peer reviewed science on my side saying that this is the case. The defense lawyers, they never had any peer reviewed science. They just had MDs giving their opinion saying, we don't believe that. But we have published peer-reviewed papers, and as I say, that's how you win your cases, and that's how you win the arguments that, that you're dealing with now. Is there any evidence that ammonia actually denatures these mycotoxins? Ammonia? I, I've never seen anything. Uh, I, I do know that extreme heat, and I'm talking about uh, hundreds and hundreds of degrees, will, will break down the trichothecenes, and I believe bleach will also break down the trichothecenes. But those are the only two things that I know of that, w w that will actually break the mycotoxins down. I've never seen any studies on ammonia. That's often a, uh, a piece of advice that I see floating around that ammonia is the way to go. So thank you for clearing that up. 
And, and I say it, it, could, it could be, Alicia. I, I, just, I just don't know that. I, I've never seen a published paper one way or the other on it, so I can't really say yes or no on that. And by the way, if you haven't figured it out now, that's exactly how I uh, come to certain beliefs. If it's published in a peer-reviewed paper, then I, then I would believe it because I know what it takes to publish a peer-reviewed paper. If, some, if someone's opinion, that means nothing to me. Absolutely, absolutely. Thank you for that. And I just wanted to circle back to Stachybotrys and the sheetrock. How are these mycotoxins, or these spores, I'm sorry, uh, attaching themselves to the sheetrock in the first place? Well, inter interestingly enough, they, they get in in the uh, manufacturing process. The uh, liquid materials, of course, the, the cellulose uh, is in a liquid form before you make the sheetrock, and the spores are already in there. So when, it, when it's formed and they put it in, in your house, the spores are sitting there waiting for water. If you never have any water damage in your house, you're never gonna have a stachybotrys problem. If you have a water damage, and, and I'm sure you ladies both know this and Eric knows it as well, you're gonna have mold growth. And if stachybotrys spores are there, you're gonna have a serious problem. My understanding is a source of confusion is that spores tend to be very fragile and will die without water after only a few hours of being dry, except once Stachybotrys does send out its spores, it doesn't try to grow immediately. If it encounters water, it will reinforce itself, harden its shell, build up a big, heavy water supply, and sit there waiting for things to happen. So these reinforced spores are capable of surviving for years under the driest conditions. You know, you know I'm glad you brought that up, Eric because we published a paper showing exactly that, that, that uh, we, could, we could take uh, sheetrock, put stachybotrys spores on it, and just set it, set it aside for several years. I can't remember the number of years, three or four years, went back and put water, water spores started to grow immediately. So this, in fact, that's the whole point of spores. Uh, you know, bacteria, certain bacteria produce spores. Uh, Bacillus anthracis produces spores which cause anthrax and Clostridia produce spores. And the whole reason that they produce spores is these things are very stable and they just sit around waiting for contact with water. And it could very well be for many, many years. They're, they're extremely stable until they contact water. And then of course, they need a food source to begin to grow. There's a um, German physician who says that uh, he did a, a, a loose study, not, not an official, sort of an experiment with putting mold in a uh, Faraday cage, protect it from uh, electromagnetic frequencies. Okay. And he said that when mold was completely free of electromagnetic frequency, it acted normally. But if you take it back out and expose it to a router or a cell phone tower or any high EMF emitter, it would produce 600 times more toxins. And I believe that this is probably impossible because these secondary metabolites are very difficult and expensive for a mold to produce. And I doubt that the, a mold would even be capable of amplifying its toxin production 600 fold. I doubt that too. Was that published in a peer reviewed journal? No, it was not. Well, but the, it's a very popular theory. Well, theories are like noses. Everybody has got one, but until you, and, that, and I cleaned that up for you ladies there. Um, until it's published in a peer-reviewed journal, and you know what happens in a peer when you send your paper to a peer-reviewed journal, they send it out to experts in the field, and they they pick that thing apart. You know, if they don't believe it, 
it's not going to be published. So, so uh, if, if it's a great theory, but I have no idea whether it's true or not. Well, I'm a great supporter of, of peer-reviewed literature. I mean, absolutely, we need to, you know, protect the integrity of our science process. But at the same time, the uh, researchers are using the lack of any peer-reviewed paper on mold at ground zero for chronic fatigue syndrome as an excuse to never investigate it or respond to the uh, research that we do have. Well, what, do, what do these people think of the Brewer paper? I mean, that, the Brewer paper indeed shows that, that indeed these mycotoxins are actually in chronic fatigue syndrome patients. And I made sure when, when we wrote that paper not to say that the mycotoxins are the cause of chronic fatigue syndrome, but there is this tremendous correlation there. And I've asked many of the uh, top researchers and their uh, explanation is that you've discovered something other than chronic fatigue syndrome. <laughs> you've, you've found a, a very common condition, but chronic fatigue syndrome is something else. And I say, how can chronic fatigue syndrome be something else when Gary Holmes and the Center for Disease Control actually based this syndrome on clusters of sick people in sick buildings where we found stachybotrys? Yeah. I, I, I can't, ex I, sorry, I, I, can't, I can't explain that. Well, that's, that's the problem with having a lack of a tangible connection between the original chronic fatigue syndrome clusters is that they can always make the argument that you've discovered something else. And, and that, that could be, but you know, it, when we wrote that paper, I had, I had to uh, depend on the fact that Dr. Brewer said that these patients, and I can't remember the exact number but, uh, of patients, may have been over a hundred, that um, these patients, he said, had chronic fatigue syndrome. And so, you know, we had to base, uh, had to depend on him saying that because, you know, as I say, I'm not an MD and I never saw any of the patients that, that he evaluated. Well, up until the uh, time that Dr. Brewer decided to look into mycotoxins, his primary su suspect for chronic fatigue syndrome was a retrovirus. I remember that lady that published the paper. Do you remember that story? Yes, I do. Oh, that's an incredible story. She wound up in jail. Yes, you did. <laughs> so I, fact, I wanted to make sure when we wrote that paper that, that we did not wind up in jail. I was giving the Whittemore-Peterson Institute and Dr. Judy Mikovits a full education on mold. At the time, she was developing her hypothesis. Which was wrong. <laughs> as it turns out, she got sick in her condominium in Reno and called me in. And I said, yeah, this is probably toxic mold. She wound up testing, finding toxic mold, doing an emergency evacuation where she actually got all of her possessions out of there and took refuge in the Whittemore Peters, in the Whittemore's own condominium in Reno. I remember that, yes. And, so and, are, and she was and she was arrested for what, stealing the stealing data and, and put in jail for that? Was that what the story? Well, she considered that she was the primary NIH investigator the grantee for this research. And when she and the Whittemore-Peterson Institute parted ways on their theories, that she was, it was uh, proprietary to her investigation. So she felt justified in taking those notebooks and computers with her. And, and they took her to court so and I, won. Well, you know, there's, there's two sides to this story. There always is. <laughs> because uh, the uh, Whittemores were very interested in pursuing testing for this retrovirus that was going to be an extremely lucrative enterprise for them. And as a result of their interest in pursuing this line of inquiry, 
they were failing to mention everything they know about toxic mold. And as it turns out, their uh, daughter, Andrea, she, I identified her as a mold responder in the same way I found the rest of the chronic fatigue syndrome cohort were reactive to mold. I simply accompanied them into a sick building and I said, look at you, you're getting sick. You're, you're moldy, you're one of us. So if we uh, just examine the both sides of the story, you know, maybe there's something to Dr. Mikovits' hypothesis. I don't know, but this isn't a good reason to ignore the mold factor. Well, didn't she, I think she had she published a paper saying a virus was the cause of chronic fatigue syndrome, and, and then had to withdraw that paper, if I remember correctly. Is that is that the way you remember it, Eric? Yeah, it turned out to be a lab contaminant. If you over amplify uh, with polymerase chain reaction genetic sequences, not the full virus, but the certain sequences that are associated with these these viruses, you can wind up discovering things that aren't really, you know, a complete virus. It's all a mistake. It, it happens very commonly in virus research. And so if somebody makes this mistake and are willing to backtrack and correct their, their mistake, usually it, it's overlooked because it's an easy thing. It, it can happen. But Dr. Mikovits kept beating the drum kept saying everybody needs to be tested and this is the cause of chronic fatigue syndrome and by the time she dug herself such a deep hole she couldn't get back out of it and wound up being discredited. Yes I, I remember that. that that's, a, that's incredibly embarrassing for a scientist to have to retract a paper because it essentially says I made this huge mistake and everybody in your field now knows about it. Yeah but I was actually in her lab as this was going on Oh, were you? How interesting. I remember when we wrote our paper, I said, the main thing I want to do is not say that this is the cause of chronic disease syndrome, because I don't want to go to jail. <laughs> Dr. Mikovits assured me personally that the XMRV hypothesis was a mistake. But um, we're coming up on the hour mark, and we just really want to be respectful of your time. Was there anything else that you wanted to talk about today or cover with our listeners? Well, I, I'm, I'm just here to, to answer any questions that you people might have. And I will say, Eric, that, that I, I have seen your name so many times, and I'm really glad that I finally got to meet you. But for some reason, I always associate you with mountains. Can you tell me why that is? Yes. Um, Good. After I <laughs> decided that trichothecine mycotoxins were my primary irritant, I devised a strategy of what I call extreme avoidance. That would do it. <laughs> I uh, used my perception, rather than rely on testing, I rely on my perception of exposure to avoid and decontaminate. And when I proposed this to chronic fatigue syndrome researchers, they said, well, you're already sick. And, you know, you've got active viruses. It's probably not going to work. I said, well, I have absolutely nothing left to lose by trying. So I'm going to proceed with this experiment. And within six months, I returned to these very same researchers with pictures of myself on top of Mount Whitney. That must be what I saw. So that okay. was my demonstration that there really is something to this mold avoidance strategy. And so I, I'm not losing my mind. I really did always associate you with mountains for some reason, and now I know the reason why. Thank you, Eric. Okay, well, one, one other thing I'd like to, to say, if, if uh, the things that we brought up, if you need to know uh, a particular paper, uh, peer-reviewed scientific paper, and you need to know, for example, we showed that mycotoxins in the air, if you'll let me know, I'll see to it that, that you get that particular citation so you can show someone. Uh, you know, the research that we did. 
We would love to email us your work so that we can go through and get those citations and start sharing them publicly. Yeah, Alicia's got my CV and I'd be glad to point out particular papers if, if you need particular uh, scientific information. Perfect, thank you. Yes, absolutely. Um, and very impressive CV, by the way. I was like, wow, 76 pages this is amazing. This guy knows what he's talking about for sure. But it only so took 40, 43 years to do that. <laughs> only 43. <laughs> oh man. Well, well, we're so grateful. And and I'm I mean, I consider you a pioneer in this research because people like us are we rely on what you've done. Um, because we're met with just I mean, you have no idea. We're met with so much opposition um, from doctors, from remediators. And so your work is really just solidifies our case for us to say, look, this is a problem. We're sick. We need help. So I'm just so grateful for that. And thank you again for joining us today. And thank you for giving me um, the information that you have and, and um, connected me with the gal that was dealing with mold in her dorm room. And um, again, thank you everyone for coming in and listening to another great interview that we've had. Trust me, we have a lot more interviews coming up um, in the next coming weeks. So brace yourself. It's a lot of great information. But again, we always provide you with the resources in our show notes. So if there's anything that you need or anything that you're interested in looking further into, check out our show notes below. So again, go ahead and like, share, subscribe to our content. Give us five stars on, on um, Apple Podcasts. I mean, we have so many people coming in, sending us um, our, their praises and are really appreciative of what we do. And we're just really excited to provide this information to you guys because we know it's really tough dealing with this illness and we know what we've had to deal with um, dealing with doctors and, and remediators and such. So again, thank you everyone, and we will see you next week.